0: verse 1 David said is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him are you Ziba and he said I am your servant and the king said is there is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel Amiel at uh, Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then King, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat always at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table, now he was lame in both of his feet. Beautiful picture here of the grace of God. This is not a formal adoption in the formal sense, but I think it paints a beautiful picture of this doctrine of adoption that we will be looking at tonight. As you read the Old Covenant, you know that people that were that were lame or handicapped or disfigured in various ways were sort of second-tier citizens when it, when it came to temple worship and even being part of society. And so this man, if you, if you read the story, I think it's back in chapter 4, um, there was an event that happened, and his nurse, when he was about five years old, grabs him really quickly and drops him or something, and he gets maimed, and he becomes handicapped because of this accident that happens. And so that's the reason why he's his, 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 uh, handicapped. But I just love the picture that, that uh, David wants to show kindness for the sake of another. Right? He wants to bless someone, and he brings in this man, and this man who considers himself a dead dog is given a seat at the king's table. Has anybody experienced that as you've come to faith in Christ, as you... Saw and understood yourself by God's grace as, as lo, as as lowly, and of not much stature, right or prestige. You understood that God owed you nothing, and yet we've been given a seat at the King's table. We've been we've been made one of His, <coughs> excuse me, one of His sons and one of His daughters, and we come tonight to discuss the glorious doctrine of adoption. Listen to J.I. Packer. In uh, the book, the, the, the wonderful book, Knowing God, he says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as, as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now, some might say that that, that Packer overshot there a bit, maybe went too far. But nonetheless, I I think he makes a, a, a good point of how central this idea of God as our Father is. Now if you go into the Old Testament, there are some texts that speak of God as a Father, but not in the way that we understand in the New Covenant. I don't think with the fullness that we get from the ministry of our Lord Jesus and following um, I think I gave you let me see. The Baptist Catechism helps us here. Um, you remember a a, few, a couple of chapters ago, we talked about effectual calling. That is the the power of God drawing men to himself by his Spirit through the Word. And the Catechism asks in question 35, What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and several benefits which accompany them. Um, Number 39, What are the benefits? which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, or sanctification. I put these here because I want us to see that these things, especially this tonight, but all three of those, are very practical. Right? We're, we're talking sometimes when we're t- using theological language, and it may seem like we're just here learning facts, just a bunch of head knowledge, stuff that we're going to leave here and tomorrow we're going to just sort of dismiss, because it, it's not all that helpful. But I hope that's not the mindset that we have as we study this confession. Look at some of the benefits that accompany justification, adoption, and sanctification. The benefits which flow from these are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. I mean, if we talk about things that we want to have in this life as believers, I don't know that, that there are things that are much better than uh, the love of God, an assurance of that love in our heart, peace of conscience before God, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of His grace, and perseverance there to the end. I mean, if we got that, we're, we're pretty ready to face anything that would come our way in this life and so those are the blessings that flow from, the benefits that flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. So my thought is that if, as we understand these things more, those things will be to our increase in profit. Number 37, which I passed, asked the question, what is adoption? And here's just a simple definition. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number... And have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So that's what we're going to be uh, looking at today: is this idea of adoption. I think this is probably, at least in my view, somewhat a neglected piece here that we don't talk about as much. We talk about God as Father; we understand that. I don't think that's that's very, you know, uh, common. But but delving into the idea of adoption, you know, it seems that as we Talk about doctrines, justification and sanctification are high on the list, are standing before God and are growing in holiness. Um, but delving into this doctrine, I think, is um, is helpful for us. There's one paragraph tonight, as you see, short, short chapter. Don't assume that that means we'll get out early. <laughs> um, so let's read together chapter 12, paragraph 1 there. It says these words, all those that are justified. Now now you see the connection. Two weeks ago it was, or last week it was all those that are effectually called. This week it's all those that are justified. So we're having this connection of the same people. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed or conferred, or in the modern vernacular, he granted in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, To make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberty and privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Praise be to God. Can I pray one more time? (laughs) Father, I pray that this night our hope in your promises would increase. I pray that we would leave this place um, to a greater degree rejoicing in our adoption as sons and daughters of of the King, Lord. Help us to understand our new identity in Jesus, that that might shape and form how we live, how we view this world, how we treat others, um, how we look forward and understand eternity, Lord. Um, Help us this night, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I have there, you see the outline Uh, On the first page, the author, recipient, mediator, and privileges of adoption. Now, we're going to just sort of breeze through the first three because they're mostly obvious and spend most of our time tonight talking about the privileges of adoption. So first we see the author, and obviously the author is God, but we see the, the confessors, the Baptists and the Presbyterians that came before them want to be clear and give glory to God. This is an act of the Lord. We might say they want, to, they want to highlight soli deo gloria, right? glory to God alone when it comes to salvation. And we see that God is the one that bestows or grants or secures the grace and blessing of adoption on whom he chooses, whom he is pleased to give this grace Everyone that is justified is also adopted. But we might say it inversely, right? That the one that is not justified is not adopted, right? And we'll, Lord willing, get to it at the end. But um, all in this world are not God's children in the sense that we're talking about tonight, right? The man on the street that has rejected Christ is not a son of God. God is not His Father in this covenantal way that we're speaking of of tonight. Um, so God is the author of adoption. It is His work that He does. It is His grace that He grants. Again, then, the recipients are all those that are justified. And as we saw last time, all the ones that are justified are all those that have been effectually called. And if we were to go back to the book of Romans... We would see that all those that are effectually called are all those that have been predestined and all those that are predestined are all those that have been foreknown of God. And so we see the, the idea here in chapter 12 is really bringing us all the way back to chapter 3 of God's decree and God's purpose to save a people in the Son, And what we see really is just a beautiful harmony of the work of the triune God. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Spirit calling, and then applying the benefits of Christ's redemption. All the while, from beginning to end, God has one people in focus. Amen. One people that He is that He is working and drawing to Himself. Now we don't know who those people are, other than we trust those that profess faith if their profession is credible. Um, but God is calling a people to himself, and so they are the recipients. We might say the elect of God. Three, who, the, there is a mediator of adoption. Notice what, what the text said there. It is for the sake of his only Son. Again, we're giving here all glory to God. God grants, God vouchsafes, He confers adoption in and for the sake of Christ. It's because of what Jesus has done that we today, those of us that are here that are, that are believers, um, we today can say that I am a child of God. God is my Father. It is because of what Christ has done. Amen. Just as salvation is not of works, lest we might boast that it, is, that it comes through faith alone alone, so, too, adoption is not because of some meritorious act that we've done. It's not because of our works. It's not that God looked at the litter and said, these ones are cuter than the others, or these ones are, more, are going to be more faithful than the others, but it is according to His good pleasure. We read this uh, of the mediator, Jesus Christ, in Paul's wonderful words in Ephesians chapter 1, where we read, Uh, In love, in verse 4, the end of verse 4, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And He did this according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And so we've been predestined for adoption to Himself as sons, and this has happened through the Mediator, Jesus Christ. So we might say that Christ and his life and his death, both of these substitutionary life and death on behalf of others, is the fount through which all of the benefits of salvation come to undeserved men. We are not adopted through a genealogical connection to Abraham or Moses or David or Billy Graham or John Piper. Whoever else you might want to think of today, right? You can go to one of those uh, one of those websites and prick your finger and send in a blood sample and get a DNA, um, you know, printout of your of your background heritage. And if you have Jewish blood, that does not mean that you are an adopted son or daughter. In this sense, we're speaking of something that comes by faith. Amen. We're not talking about a lineage of, 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 of blood, but we're talking about a spiritual lineage as, as spiritual sons of Abraham and spiritual sons of God. This really is the mission of Christ. This is a work that He came to do. Galatians 4 and 4, uh, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wonderful words there. Uh, A wonderful text to meditate on, to memorize chew on and stew on, um, I was reading recently Thomas Watson's sermons on meditation. We, we actually went through his material on a Wednesday night, a couple, few Wednesday nights here. But he says something to the effect of a sermon that is not meditate on, is wasted, and may only increase our condemnation. A, a, a wasted sermon that we sat under God's word and and heard, and that's, that's not to, to lay a, a, a burden on you. Um, but it was a it was a prick to my conscience just of how easy it is to hear and just allow those words to pass through and be focused on trivial things, whatever comes next. Um, wonderful words there, though, to think about. Jesus came to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so the author is God. Do you have a question? OK. The author is God. Of adoption, the recipients are all those that are justified. All that have been saved will be adopted. And the mediator of adoption, the one through whom we gain this adoption, is, is Jesus Christ. So what are the privileges? I want to I focus our time there. That's, the, that's the, the brunt of the chapter, is the privileges of this adoption. Um, I have a, lo- a longer definition there than the catechism had. I think it's on your handout. Yes, Um, it says there. So what is adoption? Maybe this will help the supernatural work of God where a person is delivered from Adam's ruined family as children of wrath and slaves of sin and brought into God's family as legal and loved sons and daughters of the living God. A lot of that there is Spurgeon. I want to give credit. I just sort of reworked his words. Let me me say that again. So what does it mean to be adopted by God? It is the supernatural work of God where a person is delivered from Adam's ruined family as children of wrath and slaves of sin and brought into God's family as legal and loved sons and daughters of the living God. That's a wonderful thing to consider. And I like how he says they're legal and loved. You know, it's not just that, hey, he loves us, but we're, we're, we're sort of illegitimate children, but he just loves us anyways. And it's not that. It's just a legal thing that we have his name, but there's not this fatherly love, but it's both sides of the coin. We are legal heirs, now legal sons, but also loved and cherished as a father loves his children. And so let me read again that the the second half, maybe, um, of the paragraph of chapter 12, and then we'll break it down. It says there, By which, this is in chapter 12 of the Confession, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So firstly we see that that believers are received into the family of God. I mean that's the simplest thing we understand adoption, right? That we are received into the family. And there's two things that it said there about that reception. Firstly, they're brought into the number. You, beloved, if you're in Christ today, you have become one of God's sons and daughters. You are part of this family. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I think I gave you the addresses, but the text wouldn't fit. I'm going to keep moving just for time's sake. So forgive me if I'm, if you're trying to catch up with the reading along with me, but 2 Corinthians chapter six in verse fourteen, Paul says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols?" So do you notice that this, this being one of the number is not just sort of a new name tag, but it is a, a new life, right? A, a new people that we're part of. He says that we, we were once, it's implied, I should say, um, that we were those that were in accord with Belial. We were unbelievers. We committed idolatry. Uh, we walked in darkness. But now we've been brought out of those things right? We've been brought into, grafted into a new family. And so the Lord says, touch no unclean thing. And and as we come out, as we separate ourselves from the world more and more, he says, there you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Um, Really, we ought to think about it like this. In all of the world, there's two families, right? There's those that are Sons of the devil and those that are sons of God, ultimately. There's many different ways that we can say this, whether you're of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light or whether you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ, however way we want to say that. But ultimately, there's two families that we can belong to. There's two types of people in the world. One is darkened, distant from God and doing evil deeds. The other is enlightened, reconciled to God and called holy and saints. So if Christians have been brought into the number. Secondly though under that heading of being received into the family we read there that we enjoy the liberties and privileges of a son. There are liberties freedoms that come from being God's children and there are privileges and I want to Lean here on um, Thomas Watson as I do so often. He says, God adopts us to a state of liberty. Adoption is a state of freedom. A slave being adopted is made a free man. The, the scripture says that you are no more a servant, but a son. He asks the question how is then an adopted son free? Not to do what he wants but he's free from the dominion of sin. He's free from the tyranny of Satan. He's free from the curse of the law. And he is free in the manner of worship. He has God's free spirit, which makes him free and cheerful in the service of God. He is, quote, joyful in the house of prayer. So we are free as adopted sons, set free from the bondage of sin. Slaves now to righteousness. But we also receive the privileges of being a son. Adoption is becoming, Watson says, a true heir. Having all the benefits of a son. The word that Paul uses here speaks of a Roman adoption. So most scholars are in agreement that adoption, Paul is the only one in the New Testament that uses this specific word that's translated adoption, that he has in mind the practice of the Romans. That formal adoption was not a Jewish practice in the sense that we understand it today. And, But in that society, when a person became an adopted son, he became a true heir in the fullest sense. And it wasn't as if you know, you, you, you might see someone say, oh, that's his son, and that's his adopted son. Now, we might not want to look at them differently, but maybe in some sense we do, right? But in that culture, it was even seen in an elevated sense because usually a person of, of some prestige chose this adopted son to be his heir, to have his name. So it was an elevated position of status. You became something that you were previously not, Um, It would be uncommon for a poor person to adopt someone, we might say, um, but usually it was the name that you would be given and the privileges you would be given would be elevated. And you would then be a full heir. Uh, That is um, uh, to receive all of the the fullness that an heir would receive of his father's um, wealth and etc. So we're brought into the number given liberty as adopted sons, but also given the full privileges of, of an heir. He also said that we have, we have his name put upon us. His name put upon us. We, we talked about this a while back. Uh, I believe when we, we, we talked about baptism at the last baptismal, um, or at one of the recent baptisms, but we talked about in baptism. God places His triune name upon those that are His. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is a profound, important reality that maybe we don't feel the weight of at times. Um, but I love this question in the Orthodox Catechism taken from the Heidelberg. It asks the question, why are you called a Christian? Right? Here's that name of Christian put on you. It says, because by faith I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Why, though, it asks, is he called God's only son when we are also God's children? Someone might say, well, we're all his sons. Jesus is his son. I'm his son. We're all his sons. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace through Christ. So in that natural sense, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. But we have been adopted as co-heirs with Christ. That's an incredible... Thing to ponder. Co heirs with Christ. We, we maybe need to be careful not to take that too far, but uh, <laughs> uh, that we don't receive the divine uh, nature. But nonetheless, we are co heirs with Jesus. Sons as Jesus is. That's an in, just incredible reality. Secondly, then, number two, we receive the spirit of adoption. The Puritans would would um, separate this from the crying out, Abba, Father, and being adopted, um, that the receiving of the spirit of adoption is the receiving of the spirit of God who testifies within us that we truly are children of, of God. Um, Paul's words in Romans that we read, Romans eight fourteen, uh, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Maybe that's the part that some like to leave out, right? That being co-heirs with Christ means we join Him as well in in His suffering, whatever God would call us to. But the idea here is that the Spirit ratifies and confirms to our spirit that we are truly God's sons and daughters. He confirms that we have a sure possession of all of the benefits of what it means to to be a redeemed child of God. So we receive the spirit of adoption. Thirdly, as sons and daughters, we've been given access to the throne with boldness. Access to the throne with boldness. Ephesians 3 and 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. There's a three-point sermon right there. Boldness, access, and confidence. To go to the Father. You, you know, I, I think here of, of an earthly son of a father, an earthly daughter of a father, right? That son or daughter ought to respect and honor their father. They certainly should. But at the same time, that son or daughter has bold access to daddy, right? They're one that can come at any time. The, the son or the daughter has the privilege at all times to come and jump in dad's lap, right? When it would be inappropriate for someone else to do so. As they grow older, that son or daughter has the privilege to call or to show up at any hour of the night or what have you. It's because it's dad, it's, it's a son, it's a daughter, Right? Um, he is the son of his father's love, and so the the children of uh, of a father have that unique that unique bold, confident access to their parents and we, as sons and daughters of God have bold access to his throne that's just an incredible thing to 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 consider you know we 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 think of heaven and we should as sort of this extremely reverent scene, and it is. The angels are covering their face. We don't want to take anything away from God's holiness, but this also has to come into play, right, with, with how we view what God says about what Christ has granted us, that we have bold access to come to God with confidence. That means when you pray, beloved, when you besiege God's mercy seat, you don't have to, to come back sort of, creeping in, right, and wondering, is it a good time, Lord? Is he going to be angry with me today because I blew it yesterday? Or is he tired of this prayer? You know, we might confess that an earthly father would fail in those ways, right? We have shortcomings. And we might say, I told you that a hundred times. Come on. Um, But God receives us as his sons, as his daughters. We have the privilege of coming near fourthly we are able to cry Abba father we are able to cry Abba father one author says that the spirit of God makes us aware of this new relationship the spirit of adoption and he makes us aware of this new privilege that we have that we can call God our father consider just how tender and gracious that is how intimate that is to use this personal word some have said um, it's like calling God daddy I have a hard time with that myself um, and i don't I don't claim to know the real um, heart of the word there maybe that is what it meant in in Hebrew um, but it is I would say it's a very Personal, endearing term to cry, Abba, Father. Right? It's not this distant relationship, but but consider, beloved, just the reality that that El Shaddai, God Almighty, uh, allows you to call Him Father, to come near Him in this tender relationship. Let's listen to Martin Luther on on the phrase Abba, Father. He says this is. But a little word, and yet notwithstanding, it comprehends it comprehendeth all things. The mouth speaketh not, but the affection of the heart speaketh after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am thy child, and thou art my Father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the Beloved. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. And then, fifthly, I love this threefold statement here. Another, another sermon opportunity. We are pitied, protected, and provided for. Pitied, protected, and provided for. Uh, this past Lord's Day, at the end of the sermon, I read Psalm 103. A wonderful psalm. And there's a a verse here that I want to read from, or two, from that psalm. Psalm 103, in verse 13. As a father shows compassion or shows pity to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, that we are, he remembers that we are but dust. You know, as a dad is concerned for his sick child and has compassion and pity on him, the Lord looks at our infirmities and has pity upon us. He has compassion upon us. He's concerned, we might say. His heart is is for us. It's tender for us. He cares uh, about our needs. And he also then protects and even provides. You see the sort of progression there with these, with these three words. He pities us, and in our, in our need, in our burden, whatever, whatever it is that has stirred that compassion, he then protects us, and then he also provides and meet, meets our needs in Christ. What a gracious, what a gracious word and a gracious God. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 we read humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you because he cares for you you know there's this there's these there's all of these facets of the diamond of God's revelation about himself to us that we have to that we have to marry together Right. And we have to be careful. It's a challenge, I think, for us to not emphasize one at the detriment of another, um, which is easy to do. Um, And we have to see this this perfectly just, perfectly righteous, thrice holy God that that has eyes so pure that he cannot look upon sin that is going to judge one day the righteous and the wicked, that not a single sin from all eternity, is not going to be judged, right? Do, do, we, do we understand that? Do we agree with that? Not one single sin will escape the judgment of God. Not one. Every sin will be judged on judgment day. Now, praise be to God, for you in Christ, that judgment came upon the head of our Lord, right? He, he bore that judgment of God on our behalf. But there is no sin that will escape the justice of God. And at the same time, this thrice-holy God, who is a consuming fire, cares about our puny anxieties and burdens. Those, those little things that you know are trivial, that keep you up at night, right? He cares about those things. I mean, it's profound. It's incredible. But also, He chastens us. We are chastened by our Father. We talked about this recently I read from Hebrews 12. Let me read just one verse there. Hebrews 12 and 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's hard at times for a father to render corporal punishment to his son or daughter, to bring the rod of correction to a tender soul, to see the tears, Um, but he does so if he does it in a godly way, we are feeble men. Um, he does so because he desires to cultivate that peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amen? You know, a sort of cliche that statement we kind of make jokes about that this hurts me more than it hurts you, you know. But there's some truth to that, right? That I'm, I, I, this is not a pleasure, pleasurable thing to bring discipline to our children, to have to discourage them, or what have you. Um, But we do so because we love them. Amen? It might be a blast for the child to play on the railroad track, but we love them enough to say, get away from there. You know, when the child wants to run out and we wrench their arm back as they sprint out into the street because they're excited they saw a bird or whatever, um, and they cry because you scared them, Um, of course, we did that out of love. We did that because we want to see them safe and well and we do correct them in a spiritual sense and preach the word to them and train them up because of that godly correction we know will will in time bear fruit. So as any halfway decent father and mother discipline their children, so too our loving Father in heaven chastises us. Right? He brings the rod of correction I love Beakey's words here. I think he may have been quoting someone else, a Puritan, certainly, if it's Joel Beakey. Actually, this is from his Puritan theology with Mark Jones. He says, God's chastening and God's discipline towards us are our badges of sonship. So they testify right, to the fact that God loves us that He cares for us, that He's looking after us, that He's bringing that godly correction that we need. And I have said this before, and I'll I'll say it again uh, at the risk of, of repetition, that we ought to be concerned if we can go on sinning and go on sinning and experience no loving correction of God, no hardship over our sin, no burden of the soul, no turmoil in life, if we can happily go about merrily in unrepentant sin, on and on, and bury our heads into it, and experience no discipline from the Lord, we ought to be concerned, right? Because the Word says there that if if we do not experience that, then we are illegitimate sons. We are not true sons of God. But God chastens the ones that He loves. And so we know that when our... Gracious Father brings the rod of correction in the moment, as the author of the Hebrews says, no one likes discipline in the moment. I try to to explain to my children at times when we discipline them that you're never going to like this, and Daddy doesn't like it when he has to be corrected either. (laughs) It's never fun, right, when we're wrong and someone needs to rebuke us or or reprove us. It's not enjoyable, but we know it's for our good. It benefits our soul. And so we ought to rejoice, maybe after the fact at least, when God in his grace brings the rod of correction and steers us back on that narrow way. Finally, finally there, the, number seven, the last privilege is that he never cast us out, but we are sealed for eternity. He never cast us out, but we are sealed for eternity. And let me read to you the wonderful words of the end of Romans chapter 8. This idea that we have this great assurance that we are his and he is ours. Um, That circumstances in this life, however great they may be, however awful they may be, can never separate us from our adopted father. Romans 8 and 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are wonderful words, amen? Wonderful promises when we're, when we're weary, when we're burdened by the sin that is thrust upon us from all angles and also the sin of our own hearts and struggles in this life. How should we respond I have a few thoughts here. I I believe these are from uh, Rob Ventura in his commentary on this chapter. How should we respond to this truth that we've been adopted by God? How might this impact us even this day as we leave this place? Uh, Firstly, recall your new identity and live in light of it. Recall your new identity and live in light of it. You have a new name and you have a new family and you have a new father. And that father lives different than your fleshly father. Amen. You might have a very godly man as a father that raised you. But nonetheless, our father in heaven is different, right? He is holy and just and righteous and true. And we have a new identity. We are new people grafted into a new family, given a new name, And thus we ought to live in light of that reality. That ought to shape how we think. That ought to shape how we talk. That ought to shape the things that we uh, entertain before our eyes. That ought to shape the people that we are influenced by, the people that we are around. I mean, that ought to shape the kind of work that we do, the person that we marry, everything, right? ought to be shaped by who I am now in God. The fact that I'm a different person and as God said through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, touch no unclean thing and come out of her. And that, that text is used in various contexts. Um, I believe our brother, Pastor Chuck O'Neill, when he preached on Roman Catholicism, if I can remember, it was Rome's heresy and gospel clarity. That'll preach, right? That's a nice little title there. But he used that text to preach, to to speak of the Roman Catholics that may know the truth may come to faith in Christ, but but that would and should come out of that unclean beast of that is Rome, repent of the idolatry of the wafer and all the rest of it, and come to the true uh, church. And I know that our Roman Catholic friends wouldn't like to hear that, but um, it's the truth. I believe so we ought to live in light of our new identity in Christ. We ought to walk new, as, as God calls us to. Secondly, number, number two, resolve. I, I think this is helpful for us in our polemical social media age. Resolve to love all true sons and daughters of God. Resolve to love all true sons and daughters of God. It seems today that we are, in, in, I mean, I'm, I'm very much broad-brushing here, okay? Um, but it seems today that we are very quick to pull out our swords against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, sometimes we're harder on the brethren than we are on the world, and maybe we should be in some ways. We have a higher standard. Nonetheless, um, I appreciate this, that, that we ought to love the body of Christ. Amen? We have brothers and sisters in Jesus that see things differently than we do. And their church service might look different than ours. And their piety as Christians, the way that they live and practice, it may be different. And we may disagree pretty strongly on on certain things that they do or don't do and things that we do or don't do. Nonetheless, if they're in Christ, they have the same spirit. Amen. They've received the same baptism. They serve the same Lord. And the reality is, we're going to be with them for eternity. <laughs> right? We're going to be with them for eternity. Now, in eternity, obviously all of our debate, Lord willing, will be over. right? I can't miss the joke that everyone will be a Reformed Baptist on that day. But nonetheless, now we, we cross theological swords. But we're all one in Christ, and I, and I think that's just a helpful reminder that we ought to be resolved to love the true sons and daughters of God, to have that unity. Um, thirdly, and finally, reject the ways of the world that follow their father, the devil. Reject the ways of the world that follow their father, the devil. I think it's helpful for us, for us to see this. Certainly, we live in the world and we can't, we can't not live in this world, but Jesus says, as you know, to be in it and not of it. Not be marked by it, to not be influenced, but be the influencer, um, if you will. Uh, we ought to recognize that that those that are not of Christ have a father. They're not, there's not a neutral position out there in the world, right? There's not there's not sort of the believers and the evil, wicked people, and then all those normal good people. There's a scale, certainly of of wickedness. But if you're not of Christ, then you have a father and you serve another kingdom. Um, let me let me close with this thought. So maybe you're still sitting there thinking, but aren't we all children of God? Or maybe you'll run into that um, as you talk to people. Certainly as we do any sort of evangelism on the street, this is a common thing that you hear, that we're all children of God. Jesus is God's son. I'm God's son. We're all sons and daughters. He made us, he loves his sons and daughters. You're crazy talking about wrath, judgment, hell, and all of that stuff. Um, I think there is a sense, there is a, 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 some sense that all men have come from God. We all have him as our creator. Thus, we all have that shared commonality, that God is the source of our life. He made us, right? God is our maker, Paul says in Acts 17 at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, to the philosophers there, he's quoting actually a pagan, um, their poets, but he says, In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's speaking to unbelievers there, and he's saying, We're all the offspring of God in a general sense. He made us all. We live and we move in him. No one can live outside of God's providence in His care. So as the Creator, all men find their origin in God. But the Bible speaks of adoption and sonship as something unique that only comes by faith through a covenantal union with Christ. Um, one can be God's offspring in that very generic sense that we're all from God and also His Father be the devil. Jesus in John eight forty three, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Now these are Jews with Abraham's blood and Moses' blood flowing through them, you are of your father the devil. And it and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is, the, is a liar and the father of lies. So certainly all have been created by God, but all are not of God, and all do not share in his eternal blessings. You know the words of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. right? And notice what he says Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So certainly there will be those that don't say Lord at all. They're not going to be there. But there are also some that say Lord, Lord, but will also not be there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them the the most horrific words that any ear will ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And I don't think he's talking about people there that are, that are faking it. I think there will be true people that are deceived, right, with the with a a bogus gospel of a bogus Christ, that they believed in something wrapped in Christian garb, but it was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So in whatever sense all men are somehow God's children, very clearly that reality does not have uh, a saving impact on our souls, a soteriological impact upon us. Jesus, uh, we read these words, and I'll close here with, with this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, beloved, your adoption means that in all spheres of life, your relationships have been transformed. You have a new relationship with the triune God. You have a new relationship to yourself because you have a new name, a new identity. You have a new relationship to the world and you have a new relationship now to the church. Amen. Praise God for his adopting grace. Let's pray.